I'd like to speak this evening about the power of loving-kindness. In a frequently uh, recalled and uh, recited encounter, the Buddha was once asked by his uh, disciple Ananda, would it not be true, Lord, to say that half of our practice is for the development of loving-kindness? Metta. And the Buddha responded, No, Ananda, it would not be true to speak so. It would be true to say that the whole of our practice is for the development of loving kindness. This is an important statement of the Buddha. It is clear, I think, to us that loving kindness is important, critical even in the development of the Dharma path. And yet, to really, truly understand what the Buddha meant when he said that the whole of our practice was for the development of this, we have to consider what is the implication of loving-kindness in our life and in our world. The injunction that the Buddha gave, that he offered, that he encouraged of his followers, was to cherish all beings, to cherish all beings with a boundless heart, as a mother would cherish the life of her only child. This injunction, this encouragement, is Something that is not found, of course, just in Buddhist teaching, in the Dharma. Although, as His Holiness once responded to a question about His, his religion, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, is again a well-known uh, quotation, when asked about His religion, He said, My religion is kindness. And this can be interpreted sometimes as a sort of a finding a nice way of making common ground. We might dismiss it a little bit as sort of, well, that's the bit we share with other spiritual traditions. And yet not necessarily understanding how deeply that comment points to what is the very heart and core of our practice and the Dharma tradition. (coughs) So far as we are interested to understand what is true, and this is what practice invites us and encourages us to do, to understand and to realize the deepest truth of life. In that discovery of what is true, kindness is an aspect of that truth. Kindness is there at the very heart of what is to be discovered. To be discovered in the nature of life, in the nature of what the Buddha pointed to as his realization. And we can see that this quality is not simply a destination in practice. This quality of kindness, of caring, of well-wishing, of cherishing, of open-hearted friendliness is not a destination somewhere that we are somehow seeking to get to in our practice. Because in fact, it is there right at the very beginning of our practice, and it must be, in fact. Kindness and 
caring for our own well-being and the welfare of others is really what founds our intention to practice at all. It is the basis for that movement to seek freedom, to seek the end of suffering. Where does this come from but our own caring, but our own well-wishing for ourselves or others? And so this, this movement, this journey we undertake begins with contact with the actual seed and root of loving-kindness in this caring that we have for ourselves and for others. And it is very much the basis of practice. However, as we practice what we see and what we become very aware of, extremely sort of and at times tenderly confronted with, is how strong, how compelling is the tendency towards unkindness, towards different expressions of negativity towards ourselves and towards others, taking the form of judgment, taking the form of irritation, taking the form of anger, hatred. We see how painful it is to be caught in those experiences, reacting against ourselves, reacting against others. And in the seeing of that pain and the clear unsatisfactoriness of this experience, we quite naturally again wish to be free from it because we care for ourselves. Even in the pain of being angry with ourselves or judging of ourselves or critical of ourselves or dismissal, dismissive of ourselves, in the very pain of that as we encounter it, as we experience it, the wish for that experience to go away comes out of our caring. Sometimes the fact that we don't feel that sense of caring for ourselves leads us to believe it's not there. And yet, when we don't feel that sense of caring for ourselves, mostly we wish that we did. In fact, universally, with people I've spoken to, and there have been dozens if not hundreds I've spoken about this with, there's the wish to feel that caring. And in that wish is the caring. In that wish is the caring. And so we have to look at what's going on. When we wish something difficult or painful to go away, it comes actually from a place of caring, wishing to protect ourselves from something which is painful or release ourselves from something which is oppressive, or likewise in the case of someone else, whether it be an inner condition or an outer condition, that wish not to be in contact with it, comes from a caring. And yet, that caring is not connected with wisdom. When we push away our experience, trying to protect ourselves, we actually subject ourselves to an unkindness, paradoxically. There's actually a way in which pushing our experience, pushing at our experience, puts pressure on ourself, puts pressure on the heart, puts pressure on the mind, puts pressure on our life. Pressure to be different, pressure to be good, pressure to be other than as we are. And this is actually painful, this is suffering. 
This is at the core of what suffering actually is. It's that pressure on our experience to be other than as it is. And so far as a sense of ourself is part of our experience, pressure on that creates suffering within our experience. And so allowing our experience to be as it is is an immense expression of kindness to ourselves, accepting even the reactivity that arises in our heart, the judgment, the blaming, the criticism, the harshness that can show itself within us, to actually allow that to be just as it is, to not have to identify with it and necessarily believe in or act on what it might be saying to us, but nonetheless just really allowing there to be space for this experience. This is an immense kindness to ourselves. and a kindness to our experience. So one significant aspect of what we learn to do, and this isn't necessarily part of formal metta, loving-kindness meditation. I'm speaking equally and perhaps even more to the element and degree of that quality which is in the practice of any cultivation of heart and mind, whether the development of insight and wisdom, or the development of concentration, samadhi, or the development of the the Brahma-viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. In all these practices, there is this element that we have to learn, that we have to discover about what happens when we allow experience to be. There's a poem by John Fox that speaks to this for me, entitled, When Someone Deeply Listens to You. When someone deeply listens to you, it is like holding out a dented cup you've had since childhood and watching it fill up with cold, fresh water. When it balances on top of the brim, you are understood. When it overflows and touches your skin, You are loved. When someone deeply listens to you, the room where you stay starts a new life, and the place where you wrote your first poem begins to glow in your mind's eye. It is as if gold has been discovered. When someone deeply listens to you, your bare feet are on the earth, and a beloved land that seemed distant is now at home within you. We could understand one aspect of our practice as learning to be that person who deeply listens for ourselves, to ourselves, to actually abide in that place of deep listening that simply receives our own life as it is, that allows it to be felt, allows the tenderness of it to be just as it is. And in that, there's something beautiful that happens, that transforms what it is to be that which we are.
so easily we can use meditation practice to reinforce certain habitual and unconscious tendencies of mind that are not so wholesome or skillful. And one of these can be the form in which we see negativity, judgment, reactivity in our mind towards ourselves or another. And somehow because of seeing that and recognizing that it's not skillful, use it to reinforce a sense that we are somehow not okay. Or somehow there, there's something wrong with me. Or I'm bad. Or I'm unskillful. A way in which we can use what arises, which is simply what's arising, as somehow a justification for self-rejection or self-condemnation turning away, turning our heart away from itself, we could say. And it's deeply painful to do this. It's deeply painful. When we think of what we might most wish from another, it would probably be what we would describe as love, would be something like being seen and accepted just as we are that we're seen. It's not much use if we're not seen by another. They think we're fine, but they don't really know who we are. And if we're seen, but we're not accepted, well, that's not really what we want either. That quality of being seen and accepted is immensely healing when received from another. And yet, we can't rely on another to offer that to us. But we can learn We can learn to offer that to ourselves. And to offer this to ourselves is to have the foundation to offer it to all beings who are not so different than ourselves. And in this, to actually allow there to be space for appreciation of that which we could call our life, our journey, that which we are, without necessarily knowing exactly what that is, without having to define that as someone or no one. Because those are just positions. There's something alive that's going on. That much we can be sure of. And in that aliveness, there's something that cares profoundly and deeply. And this is important to acknowledge and to honor because all too easily we can on the basis of our mistakes, our errors, our foolishness and ignorance at times, and we all have plenty of examples of that in our lives, we can use that to somehow negate the wholesomeness at the heart of our being. And somehow come to believe that Ignorance or unwholesomeness is actually the deepest truth of our existence. And it's not. That would be a tragic error to believe this. That's not to say we don't have to be careful and pay attention to those places of blindness, of reactivity, and unskillful action that arises out of blindness. And the greed and the negativity that that generates. But to actually sense the possibility of honoring 
that which is precious in us, without that being the base of some self-inflation. And yet learning not to feed self-inflation is no basis or no justification for engaging in or feeling justified in undermining in undermining our own being. <coughs> Kirpil Vananji, a Hindu monk, once said this, Break your heart no longer. Each time you judge yourself, you break your heart. You stop feeding on the love that is the wellspring of your vitality. But now the time has come, your time, to live, to celebrate, to see the goodness that you are. There is no evil, no wrong in you or in any other. There is only the thought of it, and the thought has no substance. You are dear, divine, and very, very pure. Let no one, no thing, no idea or ideal obstruct you. Even if one comes in the name of truth, forgive the thought for its unknowing. Do not fight it. Just let go and breathe into the goodness that you are. To breathe into the goodness that you are. To me what that means is to trust in that caring that lies in our hearts and at the core and at the foundation of all of our action. Everything in the end comes out of caring. But unfortunately not always out of wisdom that needs to accompany caring in order for our action to truly be skillful. When we engage in practice what we're invited to reflect on is really the beginning point, is the understanding of karma, the law of action and result. How the kind of intentions and motivations that lead us to act flavor the outcome of our actions. How when we act from a place of grasping, rejection, which is kind of inner conditions, or when we are selfish or aggressive, in the outer world, how that leads to suffering for ourselves and others. It's not actually beneficial. If we look, if we examine, we'll see this. And out of this, we naturally wish to no longer engage in forms of action that cause us suffering. Not because of rejecting or judging or blaming ourselves for the action or condemning ourselves for the action, but actually seeing that we wish to be happy. And that which doesn't lead to happiness, it makes perfect and obvious sense to refrain from that. And in that, to be able to clearly distinguish between the action, which may be harmful and unskillful, which we do not wish to support or perpetuate. And yet in not identifying somehow a fixed actor with it, we do not need to come down on the actor with judgment and blame but simply clarity that sees this does not serve. And again, to see, and you can reflect on this for yourself perhaps, to see 
that in even those actions born of greed, expressing selfishness, born of rejecting or aversion, leading to, av- leading to aggression, that actually the reason they're engaged in is the belief that this is for the well-being of the person acting or someone they care for or are protecting. Tragically, but reliably and universally, in the end, this is what motivates the action, the belief that it will serve. And in seeing that, what that does is allow us to release the judging and the blame. To see that greediness comes out of the pain of neediness and the wish to have what one needs. And that aggression comes out of the pain of fear or anger and the wish to be safe, which perhaps we can all relate to, the wish to have what we need and be safe. And that actually this is what loving kindness would wish for us, that we have what we need and are safe. So rather than judging or blaming oneself or another for harmful, unskillful action, we simply cultivate skillful action. We cultivate non-greed, non-hatred, non-selfishness, non-aggression, which is really our practice. We cultivate this out of self-interest, enlightened self-interest, when we really understand what is beneficial, of course then it makes sense to follow it. And this was the Buddha's injunction. To see that which leads to the wholesome and support it, follow it. Because we wish the wholesome for ourselves and others, of course. And likewise to see which, that which leads to the unwholesome. And to not support that, to relinquish that, to abandon it. So we develop mindfulness, concentration, presence to free ourselves from the compulsive pattern of reactivity and allow the caring that is within us to actually manifest skillfully. We cultivate heartfulness within the practice of mindfulness by our allowing, by a sense of opening to what is, again and again. And we see how important love and kindness is because in its absence, it's so painful. When the heart is not open, when we're not connected to it, this is profound suffering for us. One of the points in Dharma teachings that we come back to again and again and again is the reality of the first noble truth. There is suffering in life. There is unsatisfactoriness. We could say it that life is difficult, that at times it's hard to bear. And really acknowledging that this is so, we have to come back to this again and again. 
Because it's so hard to be open, to allow our heart to be open when we're faced with pain, when we're faced with danger, when we're faced with that which is not as we wish it to be. And in the face of those experiences, what most often or easily happens is that the contact or the connection we have with the natural caring in our hearts gets closed down, becomes somehow blocked or disconnected, it seems. Loving kindness is a natural quality of the heart-mind, of our being. But it's not always something we have access to. And we can usefully examine how does that come to be? How is it? It's not that we don't have it. It's that we don't always have access to it. So when we understand the practice of cultivating loving-kindness, we're not simply making something that isn't there. We're actually allowing something that's already there to shine more and more fully through us. One of the... uh, One of the things that is universal in human beings is the wish for love, the wish to be received with kindness, with care, to be looked after or to be supported in a way that is nourishing and nurturing to us. And it's sometimes even said that, you know, we can't survive without being loved. And this may be true, although I see it as part of the deeper truth. And I'd just like to uh, describe uh, an experiment that took place some years ago as part of exploring this. We, we do deeply wish for love. And uh, some scientists just wanting to explore this sense of what it is to be bonded, to be connected to another being. Um, created an experiment in which a young baby just recent, uh, young baby monkey, sorry, just recently weaned from its mother, was placed in a cage with a, a warm, soft, furry mother surrogate substitute in one part of the cage. And at the other end of the cage, some several yards, do you have yards here? Several feet, quite a few feet away, um, with some food and water. And what they observed was that the the little baby monkeys, who at, up until that point, the source of warmth and kindness of, and love, we could say, of mother, was also the source of food and nourishment and survival. And then they were separated, and the babies made aware, the little monkey is made aware that there's food here, and uh, by, you know, I think probably giving them a smell of it and putting it there. And what they discovered was that little baby monkey would, and this it's just, I mean, it's really deeply touching to me, this story, that little baby monkeys would hold on to the surrogate mother. And they wouldn't want to leave this soft, warm, cuddly thing. Even though if they didn't leave it, they would die, they would starve. But if they were left there, that's what would happen. They would not leave that source of love. And it, it sort of expresses in a way that incredibly deep, 
yearning for love that I think we have to be loved and how it seems to be a matter of our very survival. But I'd like to suggest that it's not just about needing to love, to be loved in order to survive. It's actually that we need to be loved in order to feel safe enough for our own heart to love. And it's actually that capacity of our own heart to love that is necessary for our survival. That we need to be in contact with this to some degree. And if we were not, we would not be alive. And the more that we are in contact with this, the more we feel alive. What happens for us is that we are born into a world that is not safe. A world in which we experience painful impingement. We are impacted in ways that hurt. We wish to be safe. But we cannot protect ourselves. We cannot be protected from the experience of harm or hurt or pain. And because of this attempt to protect ourselves, we, which, which comes out of caring for ourselves, if we can't externally protect ourselves, we attempt to protect ourselves by closing the heart, by not allowing ourselves to feel our experience. When this happens, we actually become imprisoned. We become imprisoned in our own defensive structures. And this is something that begins very, very early, long before we would be aware of it. We become imprisoned in a structure built of negativity and desensitizing, numbness. And when we encounter this in our practice, negativity or, or numbness, we feel how painful it is, how unsatisfactory it is, how much suffering there is in that condition. And again, what we're asked to do is to meet that kindly, to feel into it, to be with it, to allow it to soften through our very willingness to bring kindness to the places where kindness is absent in our own hearts. Although it may seem to us that only when it's safe can we allow our heart to be open. It is, in fact, not so. The great practice of the heart is to learn to allow it to be open in all conditions, to allow ourselves to be vulnerable. And that doesn't mean to expose ourselves to unnecessary or inappropriate harm. And in a worldly sense, we at times do need to protect ourselves, take care of ourselves. But in the inner work of the journey of practice, to actually allow ourselves to feel what is there. To learn to love unconditionally. 
to not make our willingness to feel and to respond, which is really where love is found in the willingness to feel and the response that comes naturally when we do feel, that is born of caring, that naturally moves and inclines towards the ending or the relieving of suffering, towards the promoting and the enhancing of happiness, of well-being, of peace, to actually allow that to happen more and more fully, for the heart to be open and fearless. This is the invitation of loving-kindness as a practice and as a quality that ripens in our being through our practice. The natural caring that is there in us. When manifested together with the wisdom we develop through our life. Wisdom is not there from the beginning, it seems. This is the, uh, the concept of avidya, blindness, ignorance, in Dharma teachings. There is clearly blindness. It seems to be bottomless when we plummet, and yet is not without end. Been beginningless, but not without end. And so, what is the wisdom we need to bring in this situation? The wisdom is simply this. It's not possible to avoid the uncomfortable that we all experience, dukkha. If we actually can let that in, this is the Buddha's first noble truth, the first ennobling truth. When we understand this, we are ennobled because we no longer make our life about the avoidance of the uncomfortable, the difficult and the painful. We actually take life to be something else, which is the journey of unfolding our heart, the journey of awakening our mind. We, are want, we so strongly are conditioned in our reactivity, in our habits, to want to avoid the experience of the difficult. And yet we can't. This is a fundamental reality that the Buddha spoke of again and again and again. We might think, well, if I had a different body or a different mind, then I wouldn't have to suffer. Then there wouldn't be anything painful. If it was only like this, we might have some imagination of how the conditions of our past might have been to avoid the suffering we had. Or the conditions in our present might be to avoid the suffering we have now. Or the conditions in the future might be to avoid any suffering in the future. And yet clearly, as the Buddha spoke of this, Having been born, we are subject to aging, sickness and death. This we cannot avoid. This is a one-directional movement 
It goes in that way. That's how it is. We're subject to sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair. And the Buddha spoke of this. You know, I always think when I hear that, it's like, gosh, it doesn't sound like a good advertisement for meditation, does it? Come along, you know. Aging, sickness, death, sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair. You can just see it on the brochures, people flocking to queue up. You know, give, give me more of this. And yet, when we understand how that teaching is offered, there is something lightening about it. Something that lightens us, enlightens us, makes us more light. Because we realize, oh yeah, that's how it is. It's not because I messed up, or because something's wrong, or because life's out to get me. It's, oh, it's like this. And if you have any lingering doubts about that, there's a kind of way I describe this that helps me really get it sometimes. And it's like, in terms of the heart, where we perhaps feel our deepest, the most tender forms of, of pain. In this world, if we love something, we will be separated from it at some time. If we love someone or something, we will be separated from it through accident, through death, through choice. It will happen. And in that separation, it will be painful. It will be tender. It will hurt in our heart, having loved something to be separated from it. This is painful, inevitably so. And if in this life we don't love someone or something, that will be painful. To live without love is painful in itself. To live with love will also be painful at that point of separation. We can't avoid it. We can't avoid it. We want to because we care for ourselves, because we don't want pain. But actually, what is the deeper harm? What is the deeper harm that we are subject to? And this, this we can address. This we can resolve. The deeper harm. And the deeper harm is the disconnection and the closing of our heart that occurs in our attempt to control, to manipulate, or to avoid our experience. A sense of disconnection that happens when we identify with our suffering. And somehow in our identification with it and our struggling against it, we feel isolated and separate from all other beings. And that sense of being separate is so deeply painful. The most deep pain we can experience is that separation from life, that sense of somehow being apart. And the painfulness of it is ultimately because it's not true. Because it's not true. And yet it tears at our heart to feel that sense of being separate. And that separateness comes, or that feeling of being separate, not, comes not from the painfulness of experience itself, but from pushing away on it. When we push away on experience, we actually separate ourselves from life and begin to experience life as something we are separate from. And that's an illusion that's created by the pushing, 
by the rejection, by the pressure on our experience within ourselves or our experience in the world. So we need to open to it, to learn to meet it with love, to actually connect. So I have another poem by uh, Naomi Shihab Nye speaking to this. It's entitled Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved. All this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice, till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. When we open to the sorrows of this world and the sorrows in our heart, we do not actually experience them as creating separation. We actually experience them from that openness and through the very willingness to open as revealing our connection, as expressing our non-separate nature. And in that, quite naturally, as Naomi Shihab Nye says, then it is only kindness that makes sense. It is kindness that sends us out into the world to do whatever we do. To connect, for the heart to stay open, we need to understand that this is something we have to work with because of that tendency to close and to close and to close and to understand what is the true danger. Because in the face of danger, the heart tends to close. When we feel threatened or attacked, we want to protect ourselves. And yet what is the deeper protection?
His Holiness the Dalai Lama tries to make a practice when he's living in Dharamsala in North India of meeting refugees who've made the perilous journey through the mountains to uh, escape from occupied Tibet. And I read an account of a of a meeting with a very elderly monk who just made the journey in winter, several months of hard journey through very perilous conditions with not much food, poor clothing, facing the the challenges of the mountains and the the paths through the mountains and also of the uh, the guards, the Chinese government's border guards who are there to stop anyone from crossing. And His Holiness said to the elderly monk who was in his 80s, he said, tell me in your journey, were you ever in danger? The monk looked at him and responded, he said, only when in my heart I started to feel hatred for the Chinese government. Such wisdom to know that this is the greatest danger, the danger of allowing the heart to close, of believing in the rightness of that movement. Sometimes it feels justified to us. Sometimes it feels that when we're exposed to harming action of others, or maybe of parts of ourselves. It seems justified, it seems appropriate to reject. It seems like there is no basis for other than that. And we need to understand that it's not just about protecting ourselves that we seek to keep our heart open, but it's because of the nature of human beings and action. To actually find a place of forgiveness. First of all, we have to open to our own place of fear, where we feel threatened, and allow that to be a place from which we're willing to grow. Roka once wrote, We have no reason to harbour any mistrust against our world, for it is not against us. If it has terrors, they are our terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. If there are dangers, we must try to love them. And only if we arrange our life in accordance with the principle which tells us that we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us as the most alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races? The myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses? Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us act just once with beauty and courage. 
Perhaps everything that frightens us is, in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love. We are not asked to slay the dragons, but to embrace them, understanding that it is actually that power of loving-kindness that transforms and that reveals. Reveals the heart of life. To be able to, first of all, meet that place of fear. To enter into those places where we close down. We also need to contemplate, or so at least for myself I found it important to contemplate the dragons of our lives. Those parts of ourselves, those parts of others that may seem to be bent on causing harm. To understand how this comes to be. To understand this truly and deeply in ourselves. And it's in ourselves that we can most clearly understand anything about human beings. What we understand in ourselves, we will find is to be equally understood in all beings. And what we can understand if we look carefully is that everything that we have ever done that has harmed another or harmed ourselves has been born of our pain and our blindness. This is something I've contemplated for myself on many occasions and I find it very powerful to do so. To look and to see. And it's always so. It requires some humility to acknowledge that blindness. But from our own pain we react, trying to escape, but only causing more pain. When we see it like this, our response is very different. And I have an image that occurred to me once when speaking to someone about this that I find evokes this sense of uh, understanding and forgiveness very powerfully. So you could just imagine this as I describe it, that you're going for a walk in the woods and you see a small puppy by a tree and having some fondness for young puppies, you reach out to stroke its head and as you do so, it bites you, sinking its teeth into your hand. What's your reaction? Just imagine that scenario. It's like, you little, you know, maybe we yell at it, maybe we want to stroke it, I'll teach you a lesson. Don't bite people, bad dog. You obviously need sorting out. And as we react in that way, maybe we raise our hand to strike. In the pain and the shock and the hurt of being bitten, we, see, we look more closely and we see the puppy's foot is caught in one of those spring-loaded traps with jaws that are set to catch small creatures in the woods sometimes. Just then imagine what happens inside. That place of anger, that blame, I'm going to teach you a lesson, you need sorting out, bad dog. What happens to it? In that moment, it instantly becomes, oh, this being's in pain. This thing's suffering. It's actually attacking me. Not because it actually really wants to attack me, because it wants out of its suffering. And it doesn't know how to get out. And tragically, it's attacking someone who could actually help it. And it doesn't even realize. That's what's happening. We see it straight away. In a moment... 
We have no anger and hatred towards this creature. Perhaps we have some anger towards whoever set the trap or some wish to do about that. But in that moment, through understanding the suffering of the creature that has harmed us, our heart opens. I would suggest this would be pretty much guaranteed to happen for anyone who could actually see with their heart open, even just a little. So that's the first scenario. And then imagine some months later, maybe years, you've forgotten about this first encounter, you're walking in the woods again. This time it's fall. And you see a small puppy by a tree. You reach out to stroke it. And as you do, it bites your hand, sinks its teeth in it. It's like, ah! You can't see when you look at this puppy its legs because it's standing shoulder deep in a drift of leaves. You can't see its feet or its legs. What would it take for you to know and to understand that its foot was in a trap, although you could not see it? What would that require? For me, what I understand that requiring is to know that it's not the nature of puppies to want to cause harm, to want to attack. It's not the nature of puppies to do that, unless they're in pain, unless they've been hurt or harmed themselves. If we understand that, we know straight away, I can't see the trap, but it's there. When we look at ourselves, even if we're reacting, we don't know why, we can start to understand that, oh, there's suffering in this. And likewise, in anyone else we encounter, when we actually can trust through having examined ourselves to see that this is so. And this forgiveness that comes in this is a forgiveness born of understanding that isn't about saying it's okay that people do harmful things, or that we're going to allow ourselves to be subjected, excuse me, subjected to harm or allow others. Of course, we can still act to protect. But without closing our heart, without closing down, without believing that the action has defined the actor as somehow bad or wrong or evil, simply blind and in pain, that's what we can see. And when we see that, it's natural for compassion to arise, for caring, for kindness to arise, to wish to transform the power of fear and the pain of anger, to actually transform the pain that casts a shadow in the form of anger and hatred and fear the past experience of pain that casts a shadow over our, over our present moment life and into our future. To tra transform it by actually bringing love to meet those places in our world and ourselves. There's a unbelievable and remarkable story of a woman, I th I'm not sure if it was Los Angeles or Chicago, but a woman who lived in a very poor 
neighborhood, whose son was murdered, a son aged about 11 or 12, was murdered by a boy just two or three years older, who'd never met him before. She went to the trial. This boy was caught, the murderer, and put on trial. And it turned out he'd done it in order to... It was what he had been told he had to do. He had to kill someone in order to join the local gang that he wanted to join. That was the rite of passage for them. And he'd done it because he so wanted to be part of this gang. For the safety, for the belonging that perhaps that offered. But she went to the trial. And after he was sentenced to uh, a significant number of years in a juvenile institution, at the end of the trial, she looked him straight in the eye and she said, I'm going to kill you, and walked out. And this uh, young teenage boy was taken to the uh, juvenile detention institution. And... uh, incarcerated there. After some time, the mother of his victim wrote him a letter. And after some time, another, just inquiring how things were, how he was doing. Some time later, she began to visit him. And over a period of several years, established quite a relationship with this young boy. And in his contact with this woman, he began to change. He began to see and feel deep remorse for what he'd done. And at the end of his time in prison, the woman came to him, she said, you know, I have an empty room in my house. I no longer have a son. Would you come and live with me as my son? I'd like you to be part of my family. And the young, not so young anymore, but now late teens boy said, without having to think too much. Yes, I'd like that. She said to him, you know, what I said in the courtroom at the end of your trial, I meant it. I did not want to see that in you, which was so hard and so uncaring that it could kill my son not even knowing him. I did not want that to survive, and I vowed to kill it. And you know, I think I've done that. I think I've succeeded. It's a remarkable story, that immense understanding to see it's not the boy who killed her son, it's the anger and hatred and the absence of love in his heart, the absence of love from his world that led him to that extreme condition. And that to actually extend herself in that way, that love and that kindness, transformed this young man to someone who could actually enter the world in a wholesome way. It's incredibly inspiring to me, that story. And I think it speaks to us all of what is possible for us. It's not that kindness means somehow passivity. We may have to actively engage with the forces of anger and violence in our heart and in the world, but from a place of love and understanding from that deep wish to transform that suffering.
When the Buddha spoke of loving-kindness as being, or the development of loving-kindness as being what the whole of our practice is directed towards, I think he was speaking to this power of love that actually heals the separation, the distance that we experience between self and other. That is what our practice is inquiring into, is exploring, in order to reveal the untruth of that separation. Love, in its very nature, sees through the separation. It is that relationship and that response which is as if though, as if that which is responded to is the same as that which is responding. Is not something other or apart or different or separate, but simply is the same. Not identical with, but of the same nature. Of the same basis, we could say. The wisdom of love, its transforming power, of loving kindness, of care, is that it doesn't see other. It sees what it sees as not other than itself. And in that, it reveals that the very fabric of life is an awakened benevolence that what we call bodhicitta, Buddha nature, different words that are used. Bodhicitta is the the mind or the heart-mind towards awakening for all beings. Buddha nature, these terms are used in the, uh, more in the Mahayana traditions, but are pointing to something, pointing to something, the very nature of existence itself. in which there is not separation. In the presence of loving-kindness, that deeper truth is revealed. And revealed is the natural wish for the welfare of all beings, the natural response for the well-being of all that lives. And that in that seeing, in the, through the, Almost the line from a song, through the eyes of love, in the way that love sees that there is no boundedness, there is no boundary, no separation, what actually happens then is that love that is natural becomes boundless. And life that is revealed is unbound. The sense of life is somehow bound in the boundaries that we create, that we believe in, that are not true. That boundness is released and the heart is free. This is the liberating power of loving-kindness.
So let's just sit quietly for a moment or two together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.